Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season four, episode five, and today we are going to be going back to 2008 and talking about Slumdog Millionaire. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Maddie, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Yeah, enjoying summer vacation over here. So I'm ready to do some podcasting. Yeah, it's uh, hopefully there won't be a break or everything will be seamless for the listeners. But it's been a little bit since since we talked to each other. I've had a little bit of busyness going on in my life and trying to get this in before I'm actually on vacation now. So I have a week off and I'm headed to Seattle tomorrow to visit my sister. And yeah, squeezing squeezing this one in. Yeah, very exciting. It's it's always interesting from the perspective of the podcaster that uh, you know <laughs> there's going to be weeks in between when we record things, and then we all record all out of sync, and then it all comes out in a particular order. But that might not be the order we recorded it in, or things happen in between. So I don't know. It's fun. Yeah, I always feel so bad when it, sometimes I get messages from people about something I said on the podcast, and I'm like, oof, yeah, I do not remember saying that. That was <laughs> that two was, months ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Slumdog Millionaire, what's your history with this movie? Had you seen it before before watching it this time? Yes, I'd seen it twice before watching this time, maybe three, mm. three times, actually. And that was all around the time that it came out. Uh, I didn't see it in theaters when it came out. I saw it on video the week after it won Best Picture. So spoilers, this film won Best Picture. Um, (laughs) Spoilers for history. Yeah, so I saw that it, it had won Best Picture and I wanted to watch it. And so what had happened is... I had just mentioned to my brother, I was like, yeah, I kind of want to see that one best picture. And he's like, oh, I have that one. And I said, oh, okay. And what had happened is he had rented it from Redbox and then lost it and then found it like three months later, but it had already charged him the full price. Uh, so that, or not three months, like three weeks later, but it already charged him the full price. So he couldn't return it. So he just had it. And then he wasn't sticking around, so he gave it to me. So I still have the movie in its red box case in my movie collection still. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. I hope they don't come after you. Well, you know, it's just their policy is that if you keep it for more than 14 days, they just charge you. It's full price. You keep it. Oh. Yeah. Little known fact, red box was a big deal back in 2008. Yeah, I have never used red box. There you go. Now you have a little bit more knowledge about it. So yeah. I had watched it then, and I really enjoyed it. And then I showed it to my spouse, and I showed it to my parents. So I'd seen it a couple times within a uh, like three or four week period. I watched this three times, and then hadn't really watched it since then. Okay, yeah. And I, not only had I not seen this movie until we sat down to watch it. I I don't think we recorded this, but we were talking afterwards and you asked me what I knew about the movie and I said, yeah, basically nothing. And then I said, it's not the one about the boxer, right? And you said, 
let's just stop talking about it. So yeah. uh, <laughs> it was not the one about the boxer. That's Billion Dollar Baby, I think, right? Yes, Million Dollar Baby. Million yes. Dollar Baby, yeah. So yeah. they are both million movies. Yes. And yeah, and came I, out about the same time and all of that. So. Mm-hmm. And both had Oscar buzz. And that one I have seen. So I, I was pretty sure it wasn't that movie. But yeah, I had no... I didn't know anything about this one. I didn't know who directed it. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know where it took place. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't even know there were Who Wants to Be a Millionaires in other countries. Yeah, I, I was completely blind. So that it was kind of fun. It's always nice to be able to be able to do a movie like that. Then you yeah, get a yeah. really... I'm able to really respond on the podcast in a sort of a untarnished a really raw reaction to it for sure my only other personal history to talk about is that i remember when the tv show who wants to be a millionaire came out and my family watched it every just so much i don't want to say every episode because i'm sure we missed a few but we watched a lot of who wants to be a millionaire in the first the first couple of seasons that it was out so i'm very familiar with the TV show and like the strategy of the TV show and all those mm. kinds of things. So uh, that affected my viewing of this film a lot when I saw it for the first time. That makes sense. And it is, it's not a show that we watched a lot. We didn't, we were more, if, if our family was going to watch a game show, it tended to be Jeopardy. But even then, like we just were not a huge TV household. So that wasn't like it wasn't something that was frequently on we were frequently doing other other stuff for um other stuff for for the evening makes sense and so that brings us to why we picked this movie and i don't have you know in terms of content i don't have a ton of <laughs> a ton of insight here but I do know that we, this does complete our little Oscar Best Picture duology. This comes right after Parasite. So we have two back-to-back movies that won Best Picture. And just as a little spoiler for the end of the podcast, it's a little Oscar accolades run because our next movie did not win Best Picture, but it did win Best Documentary. So kind of, kind of fun to to go down those yeah it makes sense it's whenever you're including a best picture winner that's you know uh, a lot of justification just on its own but additionally one of the things that stood out to me about this film is it's one of very few oscar winners best picture winners that is predominantly led by people of color mm-hmm. and that's on the cast for this one a lot of the production crew the the director and cinematographer are white guys from england but uh, the the cast is not white people and there's only six films that have won best picture that are that are in that category so and this was only the third of those the other the remaining three afterwards have all come in the past 10 years from the date of this podcast so in all of previous movie history only three times had that happened and this was the third one and so that was a big deal when it when it happened when this film won best picture yeah and i should also say i i meant to say this during my talking about the personal history this was 
right before, so the next year, I saw all of those movies that were nominated for Best Picture. And this just happened to be like right in the hole before I started doing all of that. And I think I was like entrenched in college and wasn't yet out of college. So it just wasn't something that I was spending a lot of my my time doing. Makes sense. Yeah. And I was right in the middle of college when this happened. So I was I was watching a lot of movies, especially because I was going to school as an English major um, mm-hmm. at the time period. So I was reading a lot of books, but also just watching a lot of films to to look at films and deconstruct films and storytelling structure and all of those things. And I was doing so much more of that when I came to this film the first time. Yeah, that that makes sense. Oh, one little other factoid that I learned while I was researching this film, as long as we're talking about groundbreaking Oscar wins, is this is the first movie to win for cinematography that was shot on digital film. Oh, wow. I did not know that. Yeah, that's Yeah, I kind of expected it to have been earlier than this, but I I guess it kind of makes sense. Like the... um, I think that switch to digital film just happened a little later than than I imagined since I hadn't really had 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 no reason to look it up before. Well, not only the switch to digital film, but the prestige of digital film at the Oscars right. lagged a little bit behind that. So that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about 2008. 2008 was a pretty big year. A lot of <laughs> a, a lot, lot of stuff, stuff happened. Yeah, in our continuing quest, continuing juxtaposition of covering movies that happened during presidential election years. Yep. As we've said, there's a 25% chance that a movie will land in a presidential election year, but it sure seems like it's happened to us more than 25% of the time. Yeah, it feels like it. So, so this, this was a big year for movies the especially like movies that had a, a pretty big impact on me in terms of pop culture the so there were a couple really big superhero movies here the dark knight came out in 2008 which yeah. for a long time i had as the best superhero movie of all time and honestly i didn't really think it was going to ever get caught like it just had that big of an impact on me when it came out when I saw it in theaters this year yeah for me I think I still have it as either number two or number three with Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse ahead of it so it's it's held its place really well yeah yeah absolutely and I uh after the latest Batman movie I sort of was re-watching some of the Dark Knight to just try and remember like oh how did this feel and I was like oh man <laughs> it kind of yeah. all holds up for me yeah and then the other big superhero movie, this well, actually, there were two other big superhero movies, but the really big one is Iron Man. The yeah, the 2008 Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man, which was the beginning mm-hmm. of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I think of that movie, uh, 2008's Iron Man, and kind of the lead up to um, to the Avengers as being sort of ushering in an entirely new era of of cinema so i think that 2008 you can kind of draw a line when you're looking at the at the history of cinema with this year as being like the end of an era and the beginning of a new one um because of 
just the impact that the the Marvel Cinematic Universe would have, and people didn't really anticipate that it would have that kind of that it would change change movies that dramatically. When Iron Man came out, like people that were interested in superheroes and comic books were really excited about it, but the buzz as far as the industry was that, well, this will be a big film. You know, it should bring in some amount of money because it's an action movie, but otherwise it probably won't have a lot of staying power. And obviously I think that was wrong, And but, you know, this is a time period of a big transition in cinema. Yeah, that that's exactly what I was going to say. It feels like these years between 2008 and 2012, and 2012 is when... The Avengers comes out Mm -hmm. like until because famously that stinger happens at the end of Iron Man where Nick Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury introduces the concept of the Avengers but we didn't know if that was possible until 2012 so it was just like this (laughs) sort of nebulous thing that wasn't realized for another four years and then everything explodes after that so the way this ties into slumdog millionaire in particular is you know this is the best picture winner at the end of that year this is like the last movie before the mcu grabs a hold of basically the box office from there going forward um Mm -hmm. so i don't know that's kind of a a weird thing to think about that that this is like the the capstone this movie is kind of the end of an era yeah and then there were a couple of other big movies that came out this year quantum of solace was in the top 10 for box office and that's the second of the daniel craig films and crystal skull also that i think that crystal skull was the number two box office movie of this year But the other one that I wanted to highlight, because it also felt like a big sea change to me in terms of how I was viewing movies and sort of the release of movies, and that's that WALL-E came out. And I don't know if this is like how the world perceived (laughs) um, the Pixar movies, but I feel like WALL-E made this world where it was like, oh, these are... These aren't just like really good kids movies. These are really good kids movies that adults also have to pay attention to. And yeah, I mean, I remember the Oscar buzz from that year and mm-hmm. Wally was in a lot of those conversations and a lot of the talk was that that they felt like because animated movies weren't being included in the best picture category that that was severely unfair to Wally that should have been nominated for best picture this year. So mm-hmm. that was conversations I was hearing from like movie pundits at the time period. So it's it's I think you're right about that. Yeah. And then <laughs> a few other big things that happened in 2008 in January of 2008 there I'm sure a lot of people remember there was a stock market crash which triggered the recession that Barack Obama would then spend the majority of the first term of his presidency trying to claw this country out of and sort of was something that overshadowed uh, his presidency. Really, 
all eight years of his presidency. Yeah, and this this film, I think in particular, uh, people were res- the love for this film at the time period was partly a response to the just the depression that people felt from the the economic fallout. Yeah, I was thinking that too. That like, how American is it that it's like trying to compare the American recession to what we see happen in this movie? And it's like, oh, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that was there were so many think pieces at the time period that were that were that's the gist of them of is comparing this film to the recession. So yeah, and it, somewhat less cynically, it is. It's not hard to see the connection between the allure of a game show like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire while going through a recession because just the simple promise of answer 15 questions correctly, 25% chance of doing it in a row and boom, you just are set for life. And or at least that's the the promise of it right yeah 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 i mean that's that that idea was really popular at the time period and i mean i remember i was extremely poor at this time period this is in the time period where i was like you know malnourished because i couldn't get enough food in my diet because i was too poor to buy food um Mm -hmm. i couldn't afford to buy toilet paper so i had to steal it from the college I'd go and steal toilet paper from the college and bring it home, like, in my bag, and that's how I would stock up in my in my apartment. So, you know, I that was around the time period of when I watched this film. So I have a lot of my feelings are tied up around, around that same experience. And then uh, <laughs> did you want to talk about Barack Obama? Yeah, I, I did, because if I think... So this movie came out eight days after the election. Um, mm. And the the way that this film and the election of Barack Obama were intertwined cannot be overstated. It had it's just when I think of the bookends of the Obama administration and the the stories that really defined it for me. This one at the very beginning and then Hamilton right at the very end are the two that I think really exemplify kind of the the cultural response to the Barack Obama presidency and I think Mm -hmm. a big huge part of why this film was so successful is because of people like coming off of uh, I guess you could describe it as the high of of the Obama election yeah especially for Hamilton like I know we've frequently referred to it as the Obama era optimism. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that in a lot of ways, people were approaching this film and the talking about this film, that kind of optimism was infusing away a lot of the way that people thought about it. And the like the way that people wrote about it, they was making direct connections. I, I mean, I was reading a lot of essays about movies at this time period. So I read a lot of things about Slumdog Millionaire and people making this explicit connection between the Obama presidency and this film and so uh, there's in my mind like for my experience there's this is the defining film of the first term of the obama era yeah yeah that makes that makes sense to me and it sort of was like intertwined with this time that a lot of 
well-meaning uh, white people that I knew were like, oh, we elected a black president. Racism is over. Like, we, we did it. I didn't think we would ever see it. And now now it's done. Now we're now it's vanquished. Yeah. And and you saw that in people talking about this film, like, oh, look, you know, and I, I don't want to spoil what happens in the film, but this kind of idea of, of just being able to solve big systemic issues with, you know, one, I don't know, if you could describe it as like a magical moment mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, all of those kinds of things sit in how I was experiencing the film when I watched it for the first time and how I think that most people experienced it when it first came out. And then the 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 experience of this film has shifted so much over the past 15 years, 14 years, that it's it's... Looking, watching it now is really weird when you're considering that time period. This is one of the films that we have covered that is so much of its time more than just about any of the others. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> the the only other thing that I wanted to mention from 2008, and it's because it's intertwined with the election in such a specific way is that I believe this was the first year that Nate Silver and I don't think it was quite 538 at the time or 538 or what would become 538 had published their presidential forecast and correctly called every single state in the for the election something which he has since said was really more lucky than any sort of magic ball but it It ties into that optimism, I think, where it was like this idea that people had that like, oh, science and logic and math and numbers can be this foolproof prognostication in in a way that like they didn't. I, I think it sort of ties into that Obama era optimism where until the 2016 election if that was your belief you didn't really have to nothing happened in that time period that forced you to challenge that worldview and so you got to live in this magical math land yeah yeah this is where you have like demographics or destiny and all of those things about i don't know just all kinds of stuff that does not hold up at all uh but were very much the conventional wisdom of that time period it's it's an inter- it's so weird to look back on and watching this film brought all of this back to me as i was like researching what happened that year and the emotions with this film yeah uh did you have anything else you wanted to say about 2008 no, that's all it for me. Oh, and the only other thing that I wanted to mention, just because I think it sort of highlights this sort of transitory period, is in October 7th, I was pretty surprised to... On October 7th in 2008, I was surprised to see that Spotify launched. Yeah. And it's pretty difficult to think of, like, the difference between how people consume music now versus now that Spotify is ubiquitous and that you can, like, no one has to buy music anymore. And they can, can, I I guess at the time, a lot of people weren't buying music because they were illegally downloading it. But now they, they can listen to it legally without, without having to 
pay for it or without having to pay for specific mu- music. They just give Spotify a subscription fee every month. Yeah, and well, and then one of the other things that I do think also ties in with th- this film is that one of the major ways that people consumed music at the time period, like before, uh, before adopting Spotify and it became really big was that people would go on YouTube and just look at the, uh, pull up the songs and then they'd listen to the music video, like, but it would be playing. And the song that's at the end of this film got so many YouTube views from people (laughs) uh, listening to it and watching it. And uh, I think that's another big part of why this film won an Oscar is because so many people listen to the music and watch that music video over and over and over again on YouTube. Yeah, let's uh, use that a little bit to transition into talking about some of our people for this movie because one of the people that I wanted to talk about was A.R. Rahman, who's the composer on this film. And as you said, the soundtrack did extremely well. It made it into the top 20. I think it was 16 on the charts, which I was pretty surprised to see when I was looking this up. I was not expecting that it would have done all that well. But if I'm looking over my notes for for this movie, I mentioned the score three different times. And A.R. Rahman yeah. is not... Uh, a household name here in the United States, but he definitely is in India. He's basically a rock star. He's done over 170 movies and we like the amount of awards and accolades that he has gotten is just innumerable. And uh, comparable to somebody like, uh, I don't know that John Williams is in that category, but like, uh, like Giacchino or, um, or who's the guy that did the uh, the pirates score? Those those kind of things. Were you familiar with him before this movie or before researching for the podcast? Not really, but I remember the music standing out in particular when I watched this film. But I wouldn't have been able to name who it was. But uh, if I had seen their name and been like, "Who's that person?" Uh, it, I would have remembered the music in particular from this film. Yeah, so I knew who he was because. He wrote a musical. <laughs> Look at that. Yeah, he's someone who, as I understand it, Andrew Lloyd Webber took a huge liking to his music and his work. And so he has a musical, Bombay Dreams, which cast album's fun. I wouldn't say it's like my favorite thing in the entire musical theater canon, but Andrew Lloyd Webber really liked it and was a huge proponent of it and he produced the musical and ran in the West End, ran on Broadway and I'll I'll drop a link to the album in the in the show notes because if you like this score you'll probably enjoy listening to that cast album. It's an absolute trip. It's not what you would think of as musical theater, but it is musical theater crossed with Bollywood. Yeah, yeah. That that sounds great, yeah. And I think that a lot of people have probably heard his music as well in other things um, and just not realized who who it came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the One of the interesting things they did for this movie was Danny Boyle, who we'll talk about here in a minute, really wanted to use M.I.A., the rapper, for, for the film. And I think they did use one of her songs in the, in the soundtrack, but then... A.R. Rahman wrote a song that was able to use her performance and then that 
contributed to how popular the the soundtrack was. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you want to talk? Uh, we jump back a little bit and talk about the astounding budget for this film. Yeah, so this film's budget was fifteen million dollars, which at the time period was a quite small budget. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, and then it brought in um, three hundred and seventy-eight million dollars, um, which is a huge <laughs> amount yeah it's a huge amount so it, i was looking up the best return on investment films of all time this one comes in at 32 and so this film it, the, the the films that are around the same area were films like greece and star wars and jaws it's a wonderful life and beauty and the beast the animated Jeez. versions yeah, yeah, so that's the kind of return on investment that we're looking at on this film. It had 1,067% return on investment. Just it's, It just completely blew people away. And it's not like the film studio was expecting this film to make that kind of money. This was supposed to be like a small indie film that like made back its budget and maybe like twice its budget or something like that and then all of those kinds of things but it just exploded and everybody was suddenly talking about it and so that contributes a lot because it became part of the cultural imagination in a different way i mean by comparison the the dark knight which came out that year as well cost 185 million dollars to make <laughs> um so and it made only like twice as much as this one so just by and the dark knight was a huge a huge success like it was a huge tremendous uh box office success that like blew people away by how how amazing it was and this one uh, the return on investment is just crazy and i it's i'm pretty sure that it is the best return on investment out of any of the films that we've covered and it's just wild yeah that that makes sense to me i mean it is kind of a pretty wild formula right like (laughs) have a small budget movie and then have it win best picture and then just have everyone go absolutely bananas for it yeah yeah that's a good way to make a lot of money i guess i guess so yeah and it's this is part of the story of the film is that they they just were not prepared the the production company and everybody involved the cast the crew everybody was not prepared for the kind of feedback it was getting because all of a sudden you had the the actors from this one de patel and and frida pinto that were just in such high demand and became like some of the biggest stars on the planet overnight the kind of financial success and the way the way that was impacting them and everybody involved with this was a very weird experience for a lot of people but yeah it was a a very strange and kind of i don't know it's it fits in with the story of the film and it's and i think that's part of why it was i don't know such a big story and why everyone was talking about it so much yeah let's uh let's talk a little bit about our director here danny boyle the so this is only the third film of his I have seen I think that's true yeah but I am familiar with the concept of a lot of his other films and I like I do really like that he seems to have a really strong diversity of genres in his films so his debut was in 1994 for Shallow Grave and then 
just a couple years after that, he in 96, he did train spotting. Have you seen either of those, Maddie? No, I have not. I have not either, but both were very well received. And then the in 2000, he did The Beach. And then 2002 was 28 Days Later, which that one's a zombie movie, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And then in 2004, had Millions, 2007, Sunshine, and then 2008, Slumdog Millionaire. And what's kind of interesting here is if you're running down that list, he's director on all of them and producer on none of them. But then, boom, as soon as Slumdog Millionaire takes off and... <laughs> wins best picture then all of a sudden everything after that he's his he's his own producer on as well so was able to gain a little cultural cachet he, he gets to become his own boss from there going forward essentially mm-hmm. um and you know he's bringing in a lot of his previous films just don't have the same kind of budgets or talents the success right. of some dog millionaire i mean the uh, Steve Jobs was a, was you know a very big film with a lot of talent behind it that would not Aaron have been Sorkin, possible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and 127 hours—that's one of the two others that I have seen, and a movie that I really enjoyed at the time. We didn't know then, or I didn't know then, what we know about James Franco now. So I don't know how how I would feel about it if i watched it now but right. it was something that i found have you seen that one i've not seen it it was on my list of things until all the news of james franco came around and i was like oh never mind and took it off my list it's so, pretty intense it is not an easy watch but i yeah. did enjoy it yeah and that one also i believe received a best picture nom that year i believe so yeah and then the other film of his that i've seen is yesterday Uh, which Mm -hmm. is another film that I really liked. And it is the film of his that I think probably has the most, like shares the most DNA with the, with Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Although, yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the uh, back half of the show. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything else about Danny Boyle? I don't have anything else to say about Danny Boyle. I don't know. He's a, he's a, really i don't want to say controversial because it's not really that that he's so controversial or even that his films are so controversial he's just a a person like a filmmaker that is you know just people don't necessarily love i don't know if that makes i don't know if that makes sense like uh, people generally really like danny boyle's films but i think a lot of people don't really like danny boyle just he i don't know I don't know how to explain it exactly, but he's the kind of figure that when you look around like film blogs and things like that, just there's a lot of kind of contempt for Danny Boyle. Um, some some of this is just, you know, that he's got some very idiosyncratic and kind of nonsensical political positions. And it, it's very I don't, like he just kind of pulls them from wherever if that makes sense mm, um yeah and so it, it i think that a lot of people kind of take issues with that and then justifiably take issues with that and then his films i think have some amount of that kind of infused into them and so i think that it fuels a lot of the reactions that people have to his films yeah i did come across this interesting quote that he had where it kind of seems like he feels the same way about himself where he, the quote is 
that he doesn't really like the concept of an auteur or a, a all-controlling director or a visionary director. But then in the same quote, he also says, but the director also has to bring everything together and lead the ship. So I thought it was an interesting statement of this duality and maybe of someone who like is a little self-conscious or has just a little bit of self-loathing for what's required or what he views as required to bring a picture to fruition. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. And then we had uh, one other person that we wanted to talk about here. So who do you who do you got? Yeah, I, I did want to throw a quick shout out to Dev Patel, um, who's yeah, he's just great. incredible actor. But I and he's very good in this film, and then it launched his career, and he's been very good in a lot of things. But the person that I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, as far as the podcast go, it goes is Frida Pinto, who played Latika in this film, the grown-up version of Latika. And she was basically unknown before this film came out. I mean, she'd done a little bit of, like, modeling work and things like that before before doing this film. But this is her first, her first film. And then she instantly became just such a huge success to the point where she was called India's biggest star in wow. the year after this film came out. And she was constantly, like, being brought on for talk shows and being brought on for all kinds of different things that she was doing. But then she had a hard time translating all of that, I guess, fame into into films that she was then doing. She has a substantial film career afterwards that's still going. But, you know, it's it was difficult for her to translate the amount of fame that she had into a similar... Uh, kind of quality in the films that she was making and then additionally a big part of this is that she was basically shunned from from bollywood because like the the entire india cinema was like well she's famous but in america and she's not one of our actors and so she kind of was not included in things and she would audition for things and just get turned down for just basically everything that she tried to do in Bollywood and kind of turned her career into much more of a a U.S. film-based career. And so it's a really fascinating kind of uh, look at how she had this huge jump to success that mirrors, again, the way this film kind of goes, but then the fallout from it is not the kind of fairy tale story that you might expect it to be. And I think that mirrors a lot of the themes that are going on in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's kind of fascinating. She's she's a really interesting figure. She still does a lot of activist work around women's empowerment and do those kinds of things. She still shows up in a lot of a lot of films and a lot of modeling and just in a lot of kind of promotional things, but hasn't really had another breakout movie role since then. Yeah. All right, let's close out our first half of the show. We just have one last section and that's where we give any advice or insight to people who might be watching this movie for the first time. I know you have something here, but I don't, like I was really able to roll with the punches even though I knew nothing. So I don't really have anything to to add here. So what do you got? Yeah, I think it generally that this is a film that people can uh, just kind of go watch um, and you don't really need a lot of preparation beforehand. But there are a few trigger warnings that I wanted to add. So if, if you're the kind of person that's going to watch it and you don't need and you're not worried about that, 
you know, go ahead and go watch it. But some of the things that show up, there's a lot of dark stuff in this one. It's kind of weird because it's it's like it's not a dark film, but there's dark things that are addressed. Um, so including things like torture, uh, sexual violence, and in exploitation, and that includes of children. And then there's suicide and self harm, and I don't know. I couldn't even think of all the other things that are included. So those things are in the film, but again, it's not really a dark film, even though it deals with a lot of dark subjects. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I, I think I would just be aware, like if the for how heavy a lot of the stuff the film deals with, like it is generally relatively lighthearted. So if those are things that you bump on, then it might not work on you in the same way. Right. And I think that's worth knowing. For sure. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break and we'll be back with spoilers. Right, welcome back to the back half of the show. We're gonna spoiler the whole gosh darn movie now. <laughs> uh, why don't I go first? I guess because it was my first time watching this movie, so I generally enjoyed it a lot. There were a couple, so I had a couple of strange experiences watching it. One of which was, and I don't know if you remember watching it for the first time, or maybe you. Maybe you had seen trailers, so you had a little better sense of what you were going into. Um, I don't think I recognized that it was essentially a romantic comedy, that it was supposed to be following a rom-com structure until maybe two-thirds or 75% of the way through the movie. And so that was uh, a lot of stuff that I found like kind of funny earlier then became... Like, it just became a little bit funnier in retrospect. And, yeah, I, th- I think I had some some tonal stuff that, that would have been a little smoother for me if I had known that was the world we were in. Do you remember from the first time you watched it? Oh, yeah. it's a, Now, it's, it was different for me because I was, saw so much of the promotion that was going on and the discussion. Mm. So I knew that it was, like a romantic story. Yeah. But then at the same time, I didn't really know the plot of the film because once I saw that I kind of wanted to watch it, I really avoided any learning anything about it. So Mm. all I really knew was that there was a little bit of a romance story that it had something to do with who wants to be a millionaire the first time that I watched it. And then when I sat down, it really threw me off. I was like, oh, is this an action movie? The first like... When he's getting tortured at the be- at the beginning, and it reminded me of Quantum of Solace, which or not Quantum of Solace, Casino Royale, one of the Bond movies that had kind of a similar torture thing that had happened be- uh, earlier. And so I was like, "Oh, is this some kind of spy movie, something like that?" Mm. Uh, and you don't really figure out kind of what it's doing until maybe halfway through the film. And uh, so, yeah, a similar experience for me. And I think that's how most people experienced the film the first time that they saw it is they kind of, it just, it gives you a little bit of whiplash how it kind of changes tones and genres about midway through the film. Yeah, which is something I actually, generally I'm not a huge fan of that. That's something that I can bump on pretty easily. But it, it really worked for me in this movie. And also... 
it doesn't it takes a little bit i feel like for for you to clue in or it took a little bit for me to clue into the framing device of what was going on like it's not really super clear about what the flashbacks are and i had a little bit of trouble just figuring out like which kid was which and so i think it took Mm. me until the second story to realize like oh we're seeing the reasons that he knows the answer to this and i don't know maybe i'm just like it, it also took me about that long, but I imagine it probably was a little bit more difficult for you because, you know, I could recognize the kids and tell the difference between them. But you, I know that you'd have difficulty with face blindness that it probably threw you off. But uh, but it was easy for me to tell the difference between them. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I had some, <laughs> some amount of questions about that. And then the other strange experience I had was I didn't know Danny Boyle had directed this movie so as soon as the credits rolled I kind of liked it a lot less because I just didn't realize that it was directed by a white guy yeah and uh in researching it there's a lot of criticism of that especially Uh from India and the Indian diaspora and I, I was thinking about how as we said at the front half like the time capsule that this movie could have been in because if this movie came out after I was on Twitter, there is no world where I would not have been aware of the movie and aware specifically of that controversy surrounding the movie. Yeah. But because it came out before I was on Twitter, before Twitter was big, I just didn't know. And I think a lot of people at the time period probably just didn't even know who Danny Boyle was. A lot of people don't didn't look at who the director of movies was. They just didn't do that. Like you might, if you were looking to see if it was like a Scorsese film or a Coppola film or something like that. But I think a lot of people just don't pay that much attention to the director and paid even less attention at that time period. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I don't want to I don't want to make it seem like the controversy wasn't there. It's just the controversy wasn't covered in the same way. It wasn't as right. much of the public consciousness in the same way. And I think there's I think there's a really strong urge to look at that and I get it I get it. I understand it. And in some ways I feel the same way that like having that innocence was so nice and not constantly being having to be bombarded by that but i i do kind of think that i not kind of i do really think that that's kind of like a false kind of insidious feeling because i do think the heightened social consciousness and just being the way that social media and the internet and the internet combined with social media has been able to give voices that have previously had a harder time getting heard particularly by white people like us has is generally a net gain for the world yeah it's it's but it's good that so many people can tell their own stories rather than having danny boyle tell their stories for them on the screen um yeah and you know this story is a story that is adapted from a book that is by I wrote down the the name uh, Vikas Swarup, um, who Q&A, was an, I think oh, yes Q and A gotcha 
Yeah. yeah. So, and he's an he is Indian. He's Hindu. He's an Indian politician, uh, actually. And so, a lot of the kinds of themes that he was trying to work into the story are still showing up in the in the film. And he was really proud of the adaptation that was done and thought it was really good. And a lot of the people involved thought it was good representation for them. But a lot of there was a lot of criticism from many different avenues and different ways that they were criticizing this film, which I think is one of the fascinating things for me. And I I guess that brings me to my reaction to the film is that when I watched it this time, I, I don't know that I don't want to say that I enjoyed it less because like, it's still a good story overall, but the academic part of my mind found it was much more focused on those kinds of interesting things. So I was looking at it from a much bigger angle of, oh, that's an interesting thing to look at, or that would be really interesting nowadays. So I was enjoying it less as of a story, but I still enjoyed the experience of watching it from an academic perspective. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it does. And I'm... I don't know. I'm glad I didn't know. Like, I was able to lose myself in the movie a little bit more because I didn't know. And I think... Because they had A.R. Rahman, like, (laughs) even if there was a lot of stuff that I read about afterwards about why it wasn't visually authentic or wasn't visually 100% truthful, it at least sounded authentic. And that's Mm -hmm. because they had a a real Indian composer rock star. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other things that I saw from so much of the the response to it, as you said, having having A.R. Rahman involved in this, the music was just so beloved, and you see a lot of response to that. But it's also just such a tricky film because, you know, it was roundly rejected in India. Like, it's basically nobody liked it in India or really watched it. And it was compared with a lot of, like, Bollywood films. And you can see the DNA that it takes from the Bollywood films. Over Mm -hmm. this summer, I've gone and watched a few Bollywood films just uh, because I had them recommended to me by a student and gave me a list of Bollywood films to watch. So I've been watching them, and I can see where they're taking some of those things and trying to bring them in, but they address it in a very different way, and so it feels dramatically different in the way that it's approaching the story. But then some of the other things that I saw is there was a lot of different kinds of criticism coming from Muslims in Pakistan and India versus Hindus in Pakistan and India. And the, mm. the it was not the same criticisms and often diametrically opposed the way that they were criticizing the films, the things that they liked and the things that they didn't like. And so it, I think it kind of became a kind of... Uh, um, a point of conflict in that regard as well, which, you know, makes it an even more kind of, as a cultural artifact, kind of an interesting one to look at and think about. Whereas, as just like a film experience, I don't know if people are going to, would enjoy it as much nowadays as they watched it. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I will say that it does look like, you know, if you're dealing with, cultural appropriation and uh, white people making uh, money off of other culture stories. There are a bunch of different ways you can go about that cultural appropriation and some amount of people just like want to put 
their own spin on it. But it does seem like Danny Boyle like did take his research of Bollywood movies pretty seriously. Like if you go, I'll put some links in the in the show notes, but if you go, there's a lot of different places where he cited like for this scene I was specifically influenced by this movie and for this scene I really loved this Bollywood movie and I wanted to channel that. And you can view that both ways. Like you can view it as him having done his homework and then you can also view it as cultural appropriation, as I said. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. And any anything that you're having, like when people are appropriating things, a lot of times what they are doing is is that kind of like drawing on different things that are influences and doing it a lot of times kind of from good intentions. I, I put that in quotation marks like that they they mean well when they're kind of uh, appropriating something, but because if you're bringing something in from a cultural experience that you don't have, you're just not going to be able to approach you're it. You're going to miss stuff. Yeah, you're going to yeah. miss stuff. You're not going to be able to deal with it in in exactly the right way. Um, and so I think this film is, is very much exemplifies that. And it doesn't hold up. This is why I thought, for example, that comparing it with Hamilton is a really good comparison because it falls, fails in a lot of similar kinds of ways that that one does, that it just doesn't hold up in the same way because of of the shifting consciousness and conversation that we've been having around these kinds of stories and the way that they're being told and who's telling them. Yeah, absolutely. Should we move on to our specific scenes here? Let's do it, yeah. All right, so the first scene that I wanted to talk about is the this escape scene where the two of them are they've gotten stolen away and they're getting trained to be singers but we've learned that the audience has learned and what's his brother's name um his brother's name is salim and salim has learned that part of this journey for the singers is that they're blinding the singers and we'll later learn that they're blinding them because the blind singers make make more money and the one of the things even on rewatch and i think this is intentional is you don't you don't really know what salim's plan is and i think I think Salim maybe doesn't even really have a plan. And then sort of it's a spur of the moment decision to throw whatever the um, knockout agent is back in back in the person's face so that they so mm-hmm. that they can run away. And I, I think that that projected uncertainty is one of the things that makes this work so well is the and part of what makes Salim's character work so well because it's it's a relationship where he is the dominant one in the relationship but there are so many times that the movie's showing us that he's just sort of flying by the seat of his pants and he doesn't really know what he's doing and it's kind of just lucky so much of this film is kind of about that it's about the small twists of fate 
the things that are just like random choices that you make that have this huge impact on the direction that your life is going to take. And so I think that's a big part of the theme. But I think also because of this dramatic irony that that we're seeing information that Salim has that Jamal doesn't have, it mm-hmm. creates this kind of tension for us and it makes Salim's character so much more nuanced and I really like that about his character in this film. Yeah. And the I like what you said about how sort of the random happenstance like that is kind of the entire ball game of this movie, right? Like it's showing us that he's not <laughs> he's not a genius. He's not someone who happens to know all the answers. He just happens to have had life events that have given him the answers to 14 straight questions just you know and basically any other question you know he isn't gonna i I love that this is a quick aside but i love the one where they ask like i can't remember what it is it's something like what's the the national anthem of india or something he's like i don't know i have no idea it's like yeah, it's at the very beginning of the movie. It's I think it's right after the first story or right before the first story he tells. Um, and, and so you get a sense that he's just... It's just these experiences specifically that are giving him the answers, uh, but it's just random chance that's happened to lead him down this this path. And, and how easy it is and how many people don't get that lucky chance and Mm -hmm. i think that's a thing that a lot of people didn't kind of get about this film i don't think this film is saying that like work hard and you're gonna overcome everything i think it's saying you know if you get really lucky you might find your way out of really difficult circumstances but look at how many times you have to just get incredibly lucky for that to happen yeah oh the other thing that i wanted to talk about in this scene because it does (laughs) it does move into this pretty affecting section where they're chasing after the train and they're able to get onto the train. And Latika is also running with them because she's been sort of watching the entire event, hiding and watching the entire event unfold. And there's a really nebulous shot where she has Salim's hand and when I watched it the first time, I kind of thought that Salim intentionally let go of her hand and then lies about it and says, oh, she let go. And then gets asked what happened and he says, oh, she let go of my hand. And at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, I must have just misinterpreted what happened there. But on rewatch... I think it's pretty intentional that you're supposed to be doing that ping pong where it is pretty unclear exactly what happens at that moment. And yeah, even though I rewound and watched it probably four or five times, I still don't really know what the intention was other than I think it was just supposed to leave us guessing. And It's supposed to be be a little bit ambiguous. I I agree with that. I always... I always read it that he intentionally drops her hand, mm-hmm. but that he then gaslights Jamal, and it's ambiguous enough that he questions himself, and he's he's unable to 
to figure it out. And I think the, the, the film is trying to make us feel that same way. Like, I don't know, I'm, it, I, it feels like he did it on purpose, but as I watch back the instant replay like five or six times, I'm not 100% sure. And I think that's on purpose with the film. I think that's the feeling that it's going for, is that unsettling feeling that Jamal has about whether or not he can trust his brother from that point going forward. Well, and it had the effect of gaslighting me as the audience. Yeah. Where I was like, wait, did I not see what I thought I saw? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the other thing that we should talk about, and this sort of happens throughout the entire movie, but we may as well talk about it here, which is there are so many sideways camera shots here and it is pretty I found it pretty unsettling or pretty unmooring just to constantly be fighting that urge of tilting my head or trying to and I don't remember well enough from either yesterday or 127 hours to know if this is something that Danny Boyle has a particular affinity for or if it's something that he did specifically for this movie um i don't know i'm trying to think back to the other ones i've watched i know that there are a few oblique angles in steve jobs and and in yesterday so Mm -hmm. um but not to this extent so it makes me think that this is a predilection that he and his cinematographer which he's worked on over and over and over again so uh, same cinematographer for those films I think they have a predilection to like using these kind of oblique angles and make turn things a little bit and make you feel kind of anxious and uncomfortable with the angle. But I think they probably kicked it up a notch for particular emotions they were going for in this film. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what's the next scene that we have to talk about? So the next scene, and I think this scene is one of the things that made me like kind of fall in love with this movie when I first watched it um, Mm -hmm. is you have this moment where Jamal is like working in this call center and then he's delivering chai to the people working at the call center and there's all these phones all over the place and they're calling into England and pretending like they are from England as they are talking to people in to get them to buy I can't remember what it is they're selling them uh I don't know, it's like life insurance or something. Not life insurance, but uh, something along those lines, right? Yeah. And for me, when I watched this, I was in college struggling to make ends meet. And one of the things that I did in order to like try and buy food during this massive recession is I worked at a company that was doing political calls uh, in a call mm. center like this. And so that's what I was doing when this movie came out. Um, and it was one of the most miserable jobs in my life. And it's, I don't know, it, it's so weird to think about that kind of experience. It felt so similar to what's going on there. And you'd go in and you wouldn't even know if you were going to work that day. You'd have to like show up at the front of the line. Uh, so you'd want to try oh, to, and all this kind of stuff and try to get a spot so that you could go in and call. And then you're just like, you couldn't really take breaks. It was very felt very much like a very exploitative working environment. And you just get in and you do your calls and do your calls and try to grind through these. And you'd have the script that you're trying to get through. And similar to what happens in this film, if you needed to go to the bathroom or something, a lot of times you just like grab somebody to cover your calls while you ran to the bathroom and then came back. All of these kinds of things. So seeing this scene 
I really connected with. But anyway, I'll pass the time back over to you, but I, I can go on with what's, uh, what happens afterwards. Yeah, it, so I still at this point, like I still hadn't really clued into the fact that this movie was about their relationship. So I was like pretty surprised when he was trying to call her and trying to reach her. I don't think I realized it until the scene where he goes to visit her at the... Um... Yeah, which is kind of like the end of this scene. He kind of does that, right? He goes to visit her at the at the rich guy's house. Yes. Yeah. So wh- one of the things that I found really fascinating about this one is he gets a moment where he's going to cover somebody's calls and sits down. And one of the things that he does is he tries to look up Latika's address um, mm-hmm. and try to find out where she's at. Can't do that. But then he has a chance to, to look up Salim, his brother, and finds, what, like 15 numbers of Salim Malik's and then goes through and calls them all and eventually gets in contact with his brother. And uh, I don't know, that moment feels... I really enjoyed that moment of the story and the the kind of decision that he's making. It's a real turning point where he's kind of taking control of his story in a much different way. Up until that point, he was always kind of following Salim and, you know, he ends up leaving them, but he kind of is unmoored. But at this point, he kind of takes over the story and becomes the one that's driving all of the action to the end of the film. Mm. Yeah, I don't think I quite clued into that in my first watch, but that, yeah, that does make sense now that you say it. It's sort of like in a horror movie where you have the, the monster <laughs> is chasing the the characters for the first half of the movie and then they the, the characters start chasing the monster back. This is kind of that moment. Yeah. So, I don't know, I, I really enjoy that. He ends up, you know, getting in touch with Jamal and then uh, goes to the house where Latika is staying and you have this, you know, this reunion and everything. But it, it's the tension when he's in the call center trying to work this out, I really enjoyed. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> I haven't worked in a call center, but I have done um, calling for the for the Democrats, mm-hmm. which, you know, or political calling. And I was like, kind of surprised at how similar their phone tree looked to <laughs> the same one that that I had when I was calling last election cycle. Yeah, it's it's it looks. If you've done this kind of thing, you see this experience, and it just is. Whoo! It is a trip. It is a little bit of an experience to see it all in the in the film the way that it's portrayed. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other things I love about this, just a quick part, is when they're like having their little classes where they're like talking about how to trick people into thinking they're from that area like what's in this area uh they're in scotland you need to call it a lock (laughs) instead of a lake and all that kind of stuff yeah it's good stuff yeah i was wondering like how now i kind of assume if i'm like talking to someone on the phone that there's a pretty decent chance that they're not in America, but I I didn't remember like how ubiquitous that thought would have been at this time. I, I think at the time period, it's hard for me to judge exactly, but I think that the idea of these kind of overseas call centers was like people were just kind of starting to figure that out and clue into the phenomenon. And even though it had been going on, I think 
for a while right, before yeah, this yeah, film yeah. G- came out. I think that people were starting to figure that out, and this film was kind of commenting on that. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't have anything else to say about this scene, though. That's it for me as well. Our next one is yours as well, so why don't we why don't we move on to that one? Yeah, this this next scene is... This is probably, I would guess, where you started to figure out that this is really like a romantic story, which is where Jamal goes over to the house to meet up with Latika, and she's there, and he finds her for the first time in years, mm-hmm. and, you know, goes into the house, and there's just, like, this tension when he goes. You have a moment before he goes there uh, where it has he's talking to the inspector, and he says that he went on the show because he thought she would be watching. Yeah. And then it goes back, and it shows us where he goes, and he's able to get on the show. So, or, or not get on the show, get to the house where she is at. And the difference in the way all of this looks really got me the first time that I watched it because this is the cinematography, I don't know if you noticed, this really changes at this point. You don't have all of those angles. So it gives you a much mm. broader kind of, what's the word? It, a much wider shot. And it keeps it more steady, so you don't have the the different angles. It gives you just kind of a horizontal picture as he comes up to this house and it fills up the frame. And it's one of the first times that we're seeing a part of the setting that isn't in the slums or in the poorer part of town. Uh, and so you feel like you are walking into a completely different world when he goes goes there. And then he finds Latika, and the house is, like, entirely, everything's white in the house. And basically nothing has been white in the entire film up until that point. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have this huge juxtaposition in the colors that are being presented and all of those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah, it's just all brighter. Yeah. Everything pops a little more. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and this uh, reveal worked really well on me, too, because I saw that the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was playing in the background of that shot before it was commented on. Mm-hmm. And I so I thought it was just like a cute little Easter egg, and then it becomes ends up becoming an integral part of the story. Yeah. Like, it's the fact that she is watching it, and she watches it every day, and as you said, he chooses to go on so that he can get to her right and then the other thing that when i was watching i didn't pick up on the who wants to be a millionaire to like as much as you probably did i probably just kind of vaguely noticed it until the mob boss comes back and turns it off uh, and switches it over Mm. to the sports channel but when i was watching it for the first time i had remembered the question was about cricket was about sports and he turns it over to the cricket channel and i was like now we're gonna figure out how he figured out the answer it's gonna be right on that right on that screen mm-hmm. but then we get this this we also had gotten this scene where the where the host feeds him the wrong answer so he'd seen that the scene was about the sports. He'd saw, seen the question, and then they go into the bathroom, and he writes in the steam on the on the window the letter B. And so when he comes back afterwards, and we've seen this, and we saw that he never got the answer 
from the from the screen all of a sudden now he has to decide what he's going to pick and i just this this moment is so delightful for me where anil kapoor uh his character prem has set him up and he's ready for him to answer the wrong answer he uses the 50 50 life or the 50 50 mm-hmm. uh lifeline to cut it down to the two things and b is still there and d is still there and then he just completely reads him for everything that he's worth reads in his entire bluff and just answers d jack hobbs he gives him two opportunities to change his answer are you sure final answer yes d jack hobbs final answer it's such a great moment of the show yeah and dev patel absolutely nails it here just the stone cold soul read (laughs) yes he's so good oh yeah it is it is excellent it also caused me you know we we've talked a good amount about sports on on this podcast and i don't know anything about cricket and so i you know i did some googling to figure out what what is it the top century score or the most number of centuries mm-hmm. <laughs> which i guess is scoring 100 points in one at bat or plate appearance i'm probably mutilating it because i don't know about <laughs> cricket and then i went down this rabbit hole and realized just how little i understand about the game of, game of cricket i'm like wait how did they I, like i sort of understand that you supposedly can keep batting for a long time but the mechanics of how that happens i have i have no understanding of yeah i mean i basically know nothing about about cricket so um i know that you hit a ball with like a with like a flat bat and that's about my extent of knowledge of cricket uh we'll have to cover a cricket documentary for the podcast and then we'll learn a lot about it then i'll know yeah so that's all I've got to say about this one, but I really love this moment. It's just the tension is so good. And the performances between Dev Patel and Anil Kapoor when when they're on like the, the they're so good. It's so tense and both of them are just phenomenal in this scene. I do have one I have to talk a little quietly so my wife doesn't hear me, but we were I was watching this one with Mary and she convinced me, I know we're going to have a little fight here, but she convinced me to put subtitles on because we were, I think it might have been a little noisy outside. So it was like a little difficult to under like understand what was happening. Yeah. And the accents are a little bit different. So the subtitles and, yeah. are very useful on this film in particular. But it ruined this moment for me because the way everything coalesces here and the way the drama built i mean it's very much like who wants to be a millionaire right where you're Mm -hmm. just hanging on that last final moment of whether or not it's correct whether it's wrong and like the way the music crescendos is all supposed to go to this one final beat and and the subtitle shows it to you like half a second before yeah yeah and it was just like one of those moments where i'm like i like i didn't and I, I don't know what it is about me, but like having that lack of timing not line up just like really threw me for a loop at this moment. And I was like, oof, <laughs> I am like now all of a sudden I'm in my head about how I'm a horrible person and I can't like <laughs> keep my brain from <laughs> running away in 10,000 different ways. And that's funny. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't know. I I I didn't have that issue, but I watch everything with subtitles. So right now, I know, yeah. and I know a lot of people do, and. And at this time period, I was still watching everything with subtitles because uh, that's something I'd taken from as as I had become a teenager and gotten older. My dad's hearing had kind of become worse and worse, and so then I'd started watching with subtitles all the time with him from when I was about fifteen up till eighteen. So at this time, I was still in the habit of everything that I watch. I already put subtitles on. Yeah. So you've always had it. Yeah, just used to it. I don't know. So, so when you come to these kind of situations, I don't know, I think part of it is that you train yourself to not look at the subtitles at this kind of situation. Like, you just part subconsciously, you're like, I feel this is a tense situation, I'm not going to look at the subtitles. And you don't, you don't think about it, but your brain just kind of pushes it off into the, into the back of your brain. I don't know if that makes sense. You no, know, it be, because that's something I've thought about is like, is this like... Is it a lack of training on my part or is am I just like uniquely bad at looking past that? Is there because I do have like some weird lineup stuff in my brain, you know, that I just mm-hmm. don't know. Yeah, it's hard to tell. And how much is affected by like aphantasia and those kind of things and how much of it yeah. is affected by like, you know just not having a lot of experience or not having a lot of practice watching with subtitles all those kinds of things i don't know yeah it's weird yeah i don't know either if other people have the same trouble that i do i definitely would want to hear from you especially you have like done some self-diagnosis and (laughs) for sure tried to figure out what what's going on yeah it's fascinating especially if you are very practiced at it and continue to have those same issues that would be interesting to me or if you used to have it, but then practiced out of it, because then then it actually maybe would go the other way where it's like, oh, I just have to bite the bullet and practice Makes a little sense. bit. Give us some feedback. Yeah. Should we move on to our last scene? Or did you want to say Yeah, that? let's do the last scene. Okay. So this is, this is it. This is the last scene of the movie. And boy, oh boy, did this, this work on me. So he's, he's got the, his, his final question for uh, whatever, 20 million rupees, I think. Mm-hmm. And he's going to phone a friend and the reveal of finding out that he called his brother, but his brother gave the phone to Latika, but I completely forgot about that, even though the movie does point it out very strongly. It does. And then you see Latika realize it when he says and she's watching on a tv in like a store window and she, i know and it's <laughs> so dumb good. and it's coincidental but i like it's so didn't good have any time to think about that yeah i was fully bought fully bought into to the rom-com nature of it and when she realizes oh no i have to go get that phone he's calling me and the look on dev patel's face when she answers the phone and the host just has the deadpan delivery of, I'm guessing that's not your brother. <laughs> so good, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, this film was, this scene was choreographed so perfectly, all of this stuff. It is, and it's it's one of those scenes where I think throughout most of the movie, like I was liking it quite a bit and I was in, and I was like, I kind of just, don't understand how it got so big i just don't understand how it exploded and how it won best picture 
and then finally for this scene it sort of all coalesced and I was like oh this uh (laughs) this moment does so much heavy lifting of just all of this tension and all of this the disparate nature of the story and as you said like it's jumping between so many genres from that torture film to the chase sequence to a few like action sequences with the guns and then like the standoff and then finally it just is like an unabashed rom-com in this moment and i was like oh yeah yeah, okay yeah i get it now now i now now i see well and on top of it they had uh foreshadowed this question the three musketeers and you know and they never Mm -hmm. found out the answer through the entire story and that's the question and just the the serendipity of that being the last question and he'd never gotten the answer and they never knew the answer is so great and for me when i watched it i was really i don't know how much you know about the rules of who wants to be a millionaire but I didn't know very much until I researched for this podcast. Yeah, so basically the way that it works is you are answering questions and it's building up some amount of money. And then if you get an answer wrong, you lose that money. And there's rules that they implemented at different points where you lose to a different stage, but that's not relevant here. If he misses this question, he loses every bit of money that he'd got up to this point. Two million rupees, I believe it was up to. Or... Five million. Yes. I don't know. It's a lot of money that he's already up to. So I knew that. What I didn't realize and I had to learn over the course of the movie was I thought once you heard the question, that was a point of no return. I did not realize you could hear the question and choose to walk away, which mm-hmm. is much crueler because then... Well, and th- the worst part of it is, is that when you'd watch the show, what would happen is you'd get the question and then you'd say, I can't answer that. And you'd choose to walk away. And then they'd have you answer it just like as a freebie. You don't get the money, but you just get to answer and mm, see if you would have been right. What would you answer? Right? And so often they get it right. And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. if I kept going, I would have gotten it. And so when he decides to just answer ah. the question here, it just is, it's such a good moment and then the other thing that's important to to know about this is the rules of the lifelines there's like you get the three lifelines that you can use you can pull the audience you can cut them in half but then always the most important one from the show and everything was always the phone call the phone a friend Mm -hmm. Uh, and there was so much drama in that moment over who you're going to call and people would have their list of numbers, like who's going to know the answer. And there'd be a lot of discussion. It would typically be like the most important moment on the show was them calling the person and the tension of the call and waiting to see if they answered. And sometimes on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, they'd call somebody and they didn't answer. And it's just the worst thing ever. So, uh, a lot of times they'd answer and they just have no idea. Sometimes they, it's something that they were really sure about. Uh, and so all of that plays into this moment of the movie really well. Having watched a lot of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, this moment really just, the tension got amped up so much higher for me because of that. Yeah, and then you add in the fact that they're having a conversation that they've been wanting to have for so long uh-huh. on live television at this moment of extremely high stakes. <laughs> a lot of money is at stake here. 
Well, and on top of it, the 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 guy, the uh, the mob boss, is seeing it on the television, and it cuts to him seeing this moment and hearing her voice, and he's like running around trying to figure out where she's at. And Salim is like in the bathtub and has set a trap for him that enables mm-hmm. them to get away because he deals with the mob boss, and so all of that also is coalescing at the same moment. Yeah, yeah, it it's really really excellent. Yeah. Anyway, he guesses the right answer. He just says, uh, A. Aramis, just because. And it's it's great. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, and I didn't quite realize it until after, but I think the the thought here is, like, the what was important was him getting a platform where he could, where Latika would see him. Yeah. And the money is sort of secondary at that point. Yeah, exactly. And that's yeah. that's how I felt as I watched it. It didn't matter to him if he if he won. And I didn't know yeah. if he was going to win because before he answers, I knew the name of the musketeer. So when he chooses Aramis, I'm like, oh, he got it. But before that moment, you're just like, he might not win. And I don't know what the film is going to do because the money was never the most important thing to him. So who knows? Like, he's achieved his goal. Who knows what's going to happen with the money? Well, and the other thing is you spend so much of the movie no because of the dramatic conceit, because of the framing device, you spend so much of the movie knowing that he is going to get the right answer. In fact, maybe this is the one that the subtitles ruined. I can't remember for sure. But and then eventually it switches because you catch up to real time and the the game show stops being a flashback and I found that switch to be pretty affecting because all of a sudden you get thrust into the real life drama of the who wants to be a millionaire show. Yeah, for sure. I don't have anything else to add about this scene. Uh, No, let's move on to cleanup, which I don't have a ton other than, yeah, the only thing I have in my notes other than all these places where I noted how great the score was, which Man, I really do think that score is great. I was listening to it today on the way home from work, and I'm like, oh, man, he did a great job here. Uh, How strange it is that there seems to be just a name for the old Chili's on the Willy game, which... Uh, yeah, that was that was not not comfortable, but he really took that in stride when, like, <laughs> I, you know, I have been dealing with peppers or jalapenos and then accidentally touched my eyes or accidentally gotten some under my nails, and that is not pleasant, so... It's traumatizing. Mm. Uh, so... Yeah. Okay, so, um... I had forgotten about this until this moment, but when I watched this film, I was still going through the kidney stone issue. And so, oh, right. yeah. yeah, I mean, I really felt that pain differently when I watched it this time. Because <laughs> I was like, oh, I bet. I, oh, it, it gave me, I don't know, it gave me kind of shudders. Uh, that was the only thing I had for cleanup, though. What else do you have? Okay, so one of the things that I really loved about this film is it's the opening shot which I think is just one of the best in any film that I've ever seen, where it has the questions come up and has the the yeah. the music playing behind, and it gives you, like, how did Jamal win this money? And then it goes through and then gets the 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 D it is written. I don't know. I, that moment really, really got me when I watched it the first time, and it still gives me chills every time I see it. 
it's just one moment, but I don't know. It really stood out in my mind. Yeah, yeah. I had I had forgotten about that until until right now. But yeah, I I agree with you. So the other thing that I thought, like the dance scene at the end of this movie was such a big <laughs> deal when it happened. Um, yeah, I bet. And I don't know. I I love it. And it's great. But also, after having watched some Bollywood movies and then going back and watching this film, watching this film. It did not hit me the same way, that dance number. I was like, this is just, it's, like, strictly inferior to all those Bollywood dance numbers I've seen. Um, oh, curious. Yeah, so, because, I don't know, like, in particular, one of the films I was thinking of is I watched Kuchu Kuchu Harahai, which has some really, really good dance numbers and songs. It is mm-hmm. it is really, really quite good. And so, then I had got, and that's the one that I had watched right before watching Slumdog Millionaire back and I just you know it did not it did not connect with me the same way because the Bollywood dance numbers are so good and this one was okay like it would be okay for like a music video or something but it's just not the same level if that makes sense yeah it does make sense so I had the um I recently watched RRR which is not Bollywood it's Tollywood but a lot of similarities, obviously. And fortunately, I did that after I had watched Slumdog Millionaire because, uh, yes, I I don't want to spoil RRR since this is not the podcast for that, but I do understand what you are saying. Yeah. So, and then the only other thing for cleanup that I wanted to mention... There's the part where they answer about who wrote the song Darshan uh, Ganshayam. I don't know how to pronounce mm-hmm. that exactly. And the answer in the film is wrong. What? Oh, really? Yes. The answer, the person that they just got it wrong. That's not the person that wrote it. And none of the answers that were on there as the options for the answers were the right answer. How does that get past fact checkers? Uh, it's really... There's... There's articles about this question that you can go read and see it. And it's actually kind of like it makes sense, the mistake that would be made. But there was a lot of kind of like controversy around that question because they were like, this shows how Danny Boyle didn't care about didn't care about our culture and things like that, which I mean, kind of does to an extent. But also when you look at it, there's reasons why that was mistake was made. So I don't know. It just was it's an interesting little thing and uh, honestly it doesn't surprise me that out of 15 uh, trivia questions that they were putting together that one of them is wrong in a really complicated way. Mm-hmm. But I just find it interesting. Should have gotten that budget up to 15.2 and gotten a $200,000 fact check. That's right. Oh, I did mean to mention this at the front half of the show, but I will mention it now. Do you know how many people have won a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I don't know. I guess it's something like 15 or 20. Uh, Yeah, you're a lot closer than I would have been because I probably would have guessed like 40 or 50, but it's only been 12. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Which, and I guess what I wasn't considering was how many, like, it's not win or lose because you can also like there's also cowards right (laughs) there's also people who are like yeah i'm out i'm just gonna take yeah most people yeah i mean i remember watching the show so much and seeing people get to the last question and they're just like no i'm i'm taking the money uh and you always would get so frustrated you're like you coward this is your moment you have but it also makes sense deep inside of you because you're like yeah i would probably take the money too yeah i don't know what i would do 
it's I don't know. Do it's tricky. Know. It's tricky. It's it's tricky because when you're at like five hundred thousand, you can do a lot with five hundred thousand dollars. And so people are always like, I can pay off my entire house and I can do this different stuff. I'm not going to risk it for another five hundred thousand. But also, you can do a lot with that other five hundred thousand dollars as well. So I don't know. It's 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 complicated. It's difficult when you're in the situation. Yeah, you only get 60% of it, though, because of taxes. That's just a PSA that I learned while researching this. Yeah, that's that's worth it. So you knowing. don't even get that $500,000. For sure, for sure. The, the last thing that I wanted to add is this was the last film to win Best Picture before they expanded the the number of films for Best oh, Picture. to 10? Yeah. Mm. So this is the last that one. That makes sense, because I think uh, when they expanded to 10, I think is when I decided, like, oh, I'll watch all of these. Yeah. So yeah. and that's my last bit of cleanup for this one. All right. So then next week, if you come back and join us, and I certainly hope you will, we will be looking at the best documentary winner for this past year, Summer of Soul, which is not a movie that either of us have seen, or at least when we chose it was not a movie that either of us have seen. And I imagine if you've enjoyed listening to me talk about music in the past, then hopefully I'll be able to to deliver for the next episode i'm pretty excited for this one i think it'll be be a lot of fun i'm excited for this as well um i've been really excited to watch this film and i had planned on watching it much earlier in the year Mm -hmm. before the oscars but then around that time we were discussing when it got to hulu that we'd probably put this film on our list and so i decided not to watch it until we podcasted about it so i've been waiting like six months to watch this film and i'm very excited to see it nice yeah i am stoked and as a programming note there has been like a rager for fourth of july going on outside my apartment it's currently in a lull but if you picked up a little music on the back end i apologize for that we did test it several times and none of it was picking up but then they kept getting louder and louder and louder but this is our only opportunity to record before i leave to seattle so hopefully hopefully that's all good and of course we do want to thank david stewart aka Asturial our beta tester and editor for the podcast for your tireless work and hopefully not your tireless work muting (laughs) that music every time I was not talking and just removing some of our ums or the times where I got distracted trying to uh, record and chat to my wife at the same time. Exactly. As always, if you want to reach out to us and we would like to hear from you, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something a little longer form, you can shoot us an email at podcaststreamit, just those three words, podcaststreamit, at gmail.com. And we will look forward to hearing from you. And then finally, I have a closing question for you, Matt. Maybe it's an obvious one, but if someone is going to put you down for their phone a friend, what are the topic or topics that they would call you for and the reason that they're listing you? Yeah. So typically in the show, you come with a list of like five numbers or something like that. And so you're preparing for, like, you pick certain people for different topics. But you have to... Yeah, that's what I assumed. But you have to... You can't come with an unlimited number of numbers. So you have to, like, figure out who you're going to call. 
and you got to tell these people ahead of time to be ready and all of those kinds of things and they don't you know it's a uh, typically not being like televised or not there's a little bit of a delay so they don't know the question when they're getting it and all these kinds of things so you really need to like you need to know the topic and so often when people go on they choose people that like vaguely know the topic but do not like know the details and you need to know specific Mm -hmm. you know like pretty specific details about things as well and so i would be a bad one to ask about a lot of different things like uh music would be really bad for me because even though i know a lot of music and i know a lot of things i'm uh, i a lot of times might not be able to match up the name with like the singer or something like that um Mm -hmm. uh, books is probably a good one for me to cover because you know i've read a lot of classics and know a lot of like the characters names and all those kinds of things and uh and the authors and things about their lives and then movies is another good one for me, to, and primarily because of this podcast. It's so I've done so much more research onto so many aspects of movies that I think I'd mm. be able to answer a lot of questions about those things. That's probably that's. I mean, I I'd be hit or miss for soccer. There might be there's probably a better person for you to pick, but that I can get, I could get a lot of those questions, but probably not the million dollar ones. Uh, so what about for you, Zach? Which ones are you the are you are we calling you for? Yeah, I mean, musical theater is the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Like that's sort of what I studied. It's not sort of, but it is what I studied in college, and it is my area of expertise. And additionally, um, it's one that comes up a lot on the show. So, oh, is yeah. It? So you'd be a good person to to have on your yeah. list. Yeah, I should have been watching more. Yeah. I'm okay for sports, especially for baseball, but like certainly my dad would be better for that. And then I think sort of like the back door is like anything that would require sort of a triangulation of time periods or dates. I tend to have a pretty good memory for those sorts of things. So I might be able to like help someone talk through triangulating something like that. In a very quick like minute phone call. But yeah, I think you'd probably be useful for that too. So list you on there for the musical theater and then uh, you get some question. And you're like, you know, who probably would be able to figure out the answer. To this is Zach and call you up and then figure it out live on air. Yeah. Do, do you know how they keep people from cheating? Um, like how they keep the person getting called from just Googling it? I'm not sure. I can't remember. It wasn't as easy to just Google things at that time period. Right. One thing. When the show came out, that's true. Yeah. When the fir- show but- first came out. So I'm, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Okay. Well, if you've ever been a phone a friend, let us know. (laughs) For sure. All right. That'll do it for us this week, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.